All right. Well, welcome, Coastline family. For the few that come out here live, you guys will be blessed by the Lord. Uh, for the rest on TV, hopefully you're blessed too. Uh, I realize it's hard to get out of here on a Thursday night, but I do appreciate the number of people that are tuning in. We see that there's a lot of people watching, even if not live, watching after the fact. So it's one of the reasons why we continue to do this night that we set aside uh, to really just use the Bible to answer people's questions. And I always like to remind people there's no bad question, um, and God's given us his word to answer anything that we really need to know. So this is kind of like practice for our lives and everyone else's lives in that when we have questions, we want to go to the Lord to seek him. And his word gives us a lot of those answers that, you know, like I said, things that are important, obviously God knows that. So with that, um, we have like eight questions tonight we're going to try to get through, which is a whole lot. So we'll do our best to do that. If you guys are watching online or in the audience and you have follow-up questions regarding the stuff we're talking about. Um, if you're in the audience, you can raise your hand. We'll try to see it. If you're online, um, you can text the number that's on there with, with a follow-up. If it's a new question, I'll, I'll just be honest, we're probably not going to get to it tonight, um, but you can go ahead and still ask it because we'll add it to our running list and an try to answer it next month or the month after. But all that to say is if it's a follow-up question or clarification on what we're talking about, sometimes you've gotten some really good ones, so don't hesitate to ask those. So um, just to introduce really quick the panel, uh, we've got Brenton Salisbury here, uh, Stephen Smiley, one of our pastors, Michael, another one of our pastors. And uh, I've assigned these guys some of these questions just uh, ahead of time so we could kind of just, you know, get a good foundational answer. And um, yeah, without further ado, let me pray really quick and then we'll start going through the, the questions. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, um, thank you so much for your word. Uh, Father, uh, it, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what your word says. And so the, the belief in our life, uh, the faith first in you, but then also in what you tell us, it comes from knowing and understanding your word. And we're thankful that you've given us the Holy Spirit to help us with that, Lord. And um, I know sometimes we can just kind of breeze through and, and not always understand what we're looking at or how it applies to our lives. So that's one of the reasons why it's good to do this. Like when we have specific questions we're trying to figure out uh, answers to and we're looking to you to do it, it's good to dig into the word and, and see how, what the answers are to those questions so that, you know, in, in that thing that we're looking for an answer that, that's applicable to our life at that moment, um, we're looking to you for guidance and we receive that guidance. And usually that you helps us in retaining those things. And so we can apply them because your word says, blessed are those who hear and obey the word of God. It's when we apply it that we really experience the benefits of it. So Lord, we just want to come here in humble hearts and understand that you're the one that created us. So you know best in all things. And so if your word says it, it's truth. And that always proves itself to be true in our lives. So we want to look to you for truth. And so be with us tonight, guide us in answering these questions. We pray we can bless the people that are asking them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle one of the questions first here. Um, okay, so the question was, if Jesus is God in new 
or and Jesus knew he was going to die and raise again three days later, how does that count as suffering? How is real suffering taken into account his foreknowledge of how is it real suffering taking into account his foreknowledge of the event? So um the the first thing I want to kind of just touch on is that we we want to be humble in understanding that God knows better than we do or anyone else, all right? I mean, we have to be humble enough to understand that when it comes to the gospel and receiving it truly, understanding that we're sinners because God says we are and what he says is right. Oh, there I am. Was I just talking to the air the whole time? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, that what he says is right is right and what he says is wrong is wrong. And so um, the reason I kind of point that out because this question, and I'm not saying the person that asked this is doing this. I don't know if this is coming from a place of hearing somebody else talk about this or if it's a question they generally have, but it almost sounds like it's coming from a place of questioning whether what God says is actually true. And that's not a good place to be. Um, God tells us in his word that it's, it's all inspired. Like this, this right here, the Bible is, is God's word to us so we could know who he is. We, we could know who we are without him and with him and of his plan to save us. And in anything else, he knew that we would need to knew, know to know him and follow him through our lives right out of this life into the next life. And part of having faith is understanding. And, and there's a lot of like, like practical proof in this. But like part of having faith, too, is understanding that if he is, in fact, God and he's in control of all things, he's preserved and protected this word for all time. So. You know, there's a humility in understanding this is truth. And so if we think differently, we're the ones that's wrong. God isn't wrong. And if someone else says it's something differently, they're wrong. And so that's important. And I had just read in my devotionals this morning, um, thank you, Britton, in First Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 2 through 5, a warning Paul was giving Timothy. He said, teach these things, Timothy. That would be the word of God that he was inspired to write and give to Timothy. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. There's that lack of humility. Um, such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people call, always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs to the truth. And then he goes on there at the end of that chapter and he says, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from their faith by following such foolishness. And that's really the key there in that if we, if we start questioning God in his word, the, the worst case scenario, it actually leads you completely away from him. So um, that's just something I want to start out with because God's word clearly tells us that Christ suffered in multiple places. So therefore, he suffered because first and foremost, God says he suffered, all right? First Peter 3.18 is one of those places. It says Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So it clearly says he suffered. 
in, in that, re- that scripture verse. And that's just one, like I said, of many. And I think one of the places where we can see the, the greatest evidence of just how bad the suffering was is before he ever even actually endured it when he was praying in the Mount of Olives the night before he was crucified. Because it says in Luke 22, verses 41 through 44, that Jesus walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, if you're willing, he's talking to God the Father, he's praying, please take this cup of suffering, speaking of what he was about to endure, away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him, and he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. So as he's not even going through it yet. He's just thinking about the suffering that he's about to go through and he's asking God for strength to endure this. It's so intense that he experiences this, what you know people have commented on, this rare medical condition that's actually real called hematohydrosis where his blood vessels are breaking inside of his body under uh, an extreme pressure or trauma to where he's actually sweating blood just at the thought of what he was going to go through. And then, you know, I was thinking about this and actually I had a real timely conversation with somebody um, that's going through chemotherapy um, because they have cancer recently. And I was just thinking from a practical standpoint, you know, does it ever really make pain and suffering less to know about it ahead of time. And the reason this is fresh on my mind is because I was talking to this person that was explaining to me how much worse it was than what they were told. And they weren't told it was going to be easy. They were, gonna, they were told that it was going to be miserable, chemotherapy. They were, they were told by people and by the doctor that it was going to be hard. But going through it, it was actually way worse than they ever could have imagined. And I just thought in my own life, like when when has pain ever been less by knowing about it ahead of time? Like, like you, you might know about it ahead of time, but when you're going through it, can I get an amen from the ladies that have babies? (laughs) It's, it's a lot worse than you could ever imagine actually going through it. So just from a practical standpoint, I don't believe that, you know, like the question just being that because he knew about it ahead of time, because he's God and he knows all things, I don't see how that would have made it any easier for him or any less of suffering than actually, you know, it, it, it was probably even worse, I, w- I would say, than he could fully understand going through it. So, um, so anyways, that, that's, that's my answer to that question. Hopefully that answers it. And again, if you have a follow-up question, feel free to, to ask that. Any questions in the audience? No. All right, cool. Well, let's go to the next one. Um, I'm gonna, ta- or I'm gonna, this one is one Michael prepared for. And this is a practical one that applies for us too. I'm glad somebody asked this. So what does the Bible say about tithing? Thanks. Okay, so uh, what does the Bible say about tithing? So uh, there's kind of like three eras uh, when we see the word tithe in the Bible. And I've, I've broken these down. These are my terms. So you can, if you have a different term, that's great. Um, the sort of Abrahamic era or the area, era of the patriarchs. So this is the time that happened before uh, the law was given at Mount Sinai under Moses. Uh, and that's the first time we see it mentioned. I'll give you those references in a second. And then we see a bunch of references to it in the Mosaic law. So that's the 
when, when God descended on Mount Sinai and creates this covenant, which was covenant's just a term for agreement. Uh, we would think of it like a contract, but it was stronger. It was the idea of this is the arrangement between us and here are the terms for it. And if anybody breaks these, one of us is going to die. It was really serious. So that's why we think of marriage as a covenant, right? Until death do us part. Okay, so anyway, so God gives uh, some regulations and uses the term tithe in the Mosaic Law, which we also sometimes call the Old Covenant. As we're working through the stuff in Romans, you're hearing some of these ideas as we're relating to how do we as Christians today relate to the law? What's our relationship with the law? And we're under what's called the New Covenant. Jesus institutes this. And so you have these three eras, the, the, the patriarchal era, kind of Abraham's time, the Old Testament or Mosaic era, Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. So what do we got? So first off, uh, the word uh, tithe has a meaning. Sometimes people think of tithe as like a Bible word that means giving, and it's not that. It actually has a, a literal definition that just means tenth. And you can see that if you see the first mention in uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 20. The, the context for that is Abraham, the, the man after, uh, the father of faith, who's been sent out by God, winds up winning this battle by God's help. And a mysterious guy named Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, the king of peace, comes and meets him. And there's this whole scene that goes down. But Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils that he'd won in the war. And so if you read it in the King James, the other translations, it'll say gave him a tenth. The King James will say gave him a tithe or paid him tithe. So that's where that comes from. So if you ever hear someone saying, I'm giving um, a tithe, uh, that means 10%. If they say, I'm giving a tithe of 20%, that literally makes no sense. That would be saying, I'm giving 10%, 20%. So tithe has a denotive meaning. It's not just a word for giving. So uh, then we, the next time we see it is in the Mosaic Law. So in God's uh, covenant, his arrangement with the people of Israel, he lays out a few different kinds of tithes, tenths. Um, the first one you can find here in Leviticus. It's, it's other places. I'm just pulling some references. Leviticus 27. It's Leviticus 27. Um, would be one spot. Numbers 18. Numbers, and then Deuteronomy 14. That's Leviticus 27. Leviticus Numbers 18. And Deuteronomy 14. First off. Themselves, the duties were ours, the worship of God, so they were Whether the produce of the land, whether grain means field, it's almost like a tax in a way, a religious tax. You'd pay your 10% increase to support this part of the, the governmental structure, the theocracy that God had set up. And then there was one other kind of unique tithe in Deuteronomy 14. At the end of every third year, they would bring this special tithe and it would be collected by the Levites and they would use it for the support of the poor. So that's kind of cool. It's a way, again, of the theocratic system. Oh, okay, sorry. Just making sure I don't need to fix my mic. Uh, so there's this, this tie that was given for, for that purpose. One other mention now outside of the given law, but during the old covenant. Now make sure I make that makes sense. So what I just read to you from Leviticus and Numbers are terms that God gave to his people for how their relationship would work as a government, as a country, as a people, right? And now skipping way ahead hundreds of years to Malachi, God calls back to that covenant and talks to them about how that situation is going down. So this is not given in the law, but it's in that same era when the law was in effect in that old covenant. Did that make sense? Could someone out there tell me? Or if you're like, that makes no sense, I need to explain it, I would love to know because I just said a lot of things. Does that make sense? Okay, I got one thumbs up. I'm going to go with that. Uh, so Malachi chapter 3, and this is a, a section that comes up big for people when they think about tithing. So 
chapter three, verses eight through 10, uh, God is speaking to his people through the prophet Malachi. And he says this, should people cheat God or should a man rob God is the traditional translation. Yet you have cheated me or you've robbed me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. So notice there's those two terms, tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all of the tithes into the storehouse so there'll be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I'll pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it, put me to the test. So he basically says, when we don't know all of the circumstances, the people were back in the land and they were not bringing their tithes, as we read about in the Mosaic Law, to the central storehouse. We don't know if they were just shorting them or only bringing selected parts or how that was working, but in some way they weren't following the law, basically. And God says to them two things. He says, you're not bringing me the tithes, which we've read about, but you were also allowed to bring offerings. So say you, you know, God really blessed your family. You know, he healed your daughter. I don't know what. And you said, God, I'm so grateful. I want to bring you a special offering. That would be different from the tithe, right? So he says, you're not bringing these things that are, that are due to me. And because of that, you're under a curse. And there's this, been this uh, poverty or poor yield among your crops. It's related to your failure to follow the terms of the agreement that we made when I gave the law to Moses. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. It'd be like, imagine you've got kids and you're like, listen, you know, you've noticed you haven't had any dessert for a week. Do you know why that is? The terms of our agreement are you clean your room and you get dessert. You failed to clean your room, therefore no dessert. That's kind of how the Mosaic law worked. So he says to them, listen, test me. If you follow the rules, if you follow this plan, I'm going to bless you. You should try me in this. You should start following the rules and you'll see what I can do for you. There'll be so much ice cream. Just kidding. Okay, so moving forward from that to the new covenant. Now, this is really important to get, guys, that as we'll see going through Romans and other places, we are not, as Christians, under the old covenant, the old law that was given to Moses. That was something that God gave to the Jewish people in that arrangement that took place at Mount Sinai. Now, are any of you in here Jews? There might be someone, but generally most of us are Gentiles. We're people that were outside of the, the nation of Israel. We're not part of that group. And when we became Christians, we became part of Christ's body. Jesus, if you go back and read in the gospels, when he institutes what we take of, we think of as communion, he institutes what's called the new covenant. It's a new arrangement. And all the way through the gospels, he's talking about this, hey, you don't put new wine, a new thing I'm doing, into old wineskins. You have new wine in new wineskins. And just all these analogies that he draws to say we're under something different. So the question for us really is, if these old covenant uh, laws don't apply to us, then what about tithing for us? Is there any mention of that in relation for the Christian? Well, there's one in the New Testament, and it's in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 11, verse 42, and it's Jesus speaking. So that's, that's good, right? That should be helpful. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, woe to you Pharisees, Luke eleven forty two, for you pay tithes of mint and rue and every kind of herb. These guys were such legalists that they would go through their garden and make sure if they harvested a little bit of rosemary, they're like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, here's one for God. One, two, three, and they count them off. Yet you disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you, this is hard to parse, listen, should have done. So he's referring to the tithing. He says, these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others, the more important things about love and mercy, etc. 
So this is a, a kind of a complex passage to interpret, not because we don't understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, listen, I see you. You're doing all this very complex tithing. I got you. But the stuff that really is most important to me is not whether I get enough rosemary when you go to pay your tithe. I want you to love God, and I want you to be about mercy and justice and these other things. That's super important. At the time Jesus gives this command, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the the Jews and the Pharisees in particular, speaking to Jews. So he's talking to people who are under the Mosaic law about things in the Mosaic law that would apply to them. He's also speaking to them before he dies and raises again from the dead and institutes the new covenant. So it's kind of this transitional period. So there are some who would read that verse and go, aha, Jesus said, you should tithe as well as be about these other things. And if that's your conviction, great. I would read that and go, I don't know that that justifies that. I'm not a Pharisee and I'm not a Jew. Those things were given to the Jews for a specific time. After that, in the rest of the New, Co New Testament, there's no mention of tithing. So for many people, they conclude tithing doesn't apply to the Christian. But really, when we talk about tithing, what most people are really getting at is what about giving, right? They mistake sometimes that word tithe, like I said at the beginning, for giving. And it's not that. It's a particular thing. It's a giving a tenth. Does the New Testament say anything about giving? Yes, lots of things to, for us. And so we'll just pull a few passages here real quick. So the first one is um, first, well, yeah, I'm gonna start with 1 Corinthians 16, one through four. This is a, a, a letter from Paul to a church at Corinth. One of the things I love about the churches at Corinth is that they are a lot like Americans. They've got a lot of the same problems, sexual immorality, they're going to court a lot, they're kind of wealthy. Um, they're just got a, they've got a lot of problems. And the great thing about that is because of that, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, wrote answers to a lot of their problems. And because of that, I've got all kinds of wisdom from God in his word for people like me. So anyway, here's what he wrote. He says, now, regarding your question, they had written to Paul about this, about money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem. So they said, hey, we want to we wanna take an offering. How should that go down? So Paul writes them about how to do that. He says, your question about collecting money for God's people. You should follow, listen, the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. So Paul evidently prescribed this as a way of giving in churches. And here's what he says. On the first day of each week, that would be what day? Sunday. Sunday. There we go. That's when we gather. You should put aside a portion of the money you've earned. So he says, you should take some of the money you earned during the week, put it aside, right? Don't wait till I get there and try to collect it at once. But when I come, I can write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gifts to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. So basically he says, hey, it should be regular, it should be planned, and it should be uh, put aside. I guess maybe I can choose three Ps there real quick. So that's kind of what is prescribed for us is like, hey man, when you're coming to worship the Lord, you should have some money that you want to give to him and, uh, and put it aside for that purpose and, and give it to him. There you go. Uh, the next one that I really like is 2 Corinthians. Again, same church, um, another letter, verse, or chapter 9, verses 6 through 11. This talks about how we give. And boy, you guys, this right here gets to the main point. The heart of the matter, as has been said, is every, the heart of every matter is a matter of the heart. And what we don't have in our day is a theocratic system that needed funding, where the old tithe functioned in a way almost like a tax to fund the theocratic government. We don't have that. So God isn't trying to raise money. He's not like short, like running a campaign with Sarah McLaughlin music, you know, trying to raise money for dogs or something like that. He's not playing on your emotions. He just wants your heart. He loves you. And so he's talking about how we give. There's that procedure for how you would collect the money, but this is a really important thing. 
Chapter 9, verse 6, remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart or your own heart how much to give. So there's something personal about the way that you decide to give. It's not something necessarily that you work out as a group, but it's something between you and the Lord that you need to work out. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. How many religious appeals have you seen that, are that, that follow that rule? Yeah, they got the Sarah McLaughlin music praying. There's pictures of the poor, starving children. And it's not about responding to need, but they're like, and you need to show how great your faith in God is by writing the biggest check you can. Boy, that sounds like pressure to me. That's kind of weird. That's not God's heart. For, listen, here's the quote. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And that Greek word actually can mean hilariously. Like, it's almost funny. Like, it's so fun. We get to give back to God. Eight, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As the scriptures say, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. And in the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, you'll be enriched in every way so you can always be generous. So Paul writes to them and says like, here's the deal, guys. You should be generous givers. You should do this. And the reason, you, the way you should do it is you should do it in, you should purpose in your heart ahead of time what, you, what you're gonna do. Talk to the Lord about it. And you should do it cheerfully. Not as a, I gotta pay my tithe. I hate it when I hear that term for many reasons because I don't think it applies. But it's like, man, you're giving a gift to the one you love who loved you and gave his whole life for you, right? So we, we give cheerfully out of our own heart in a relationship with the Lord. Now, the last part, Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's this principle that our heart often follows our money, right? And this was not hard to see if you remove it from a religious context. If you think about the things that you love, right? If, uh, I don't know, I'm a huge Blazer fan. So, you know, if, uh, if the Blazers were any good this year, which they're not, um, you know, and someone was like, hey, I've got a courtside ticket. It costs a hundred bucks. I'd probably try to come up with that hundred bucks because I love going to Blazer games. And you could tell the fact I was willing to drop $100 and drive to Portland to sit in a seat and watch really athletic people do things because I enjoy it. You can see when people fall in love and all of a sudden they're giving gifts to this person. Like, man, that guy was really stingy and now he likes this woman. He's doing, why? His heart has moved there. And so you see that a person who's been touched by the Lord will often want to respond with generosity towards the Lord and towards his people. It's an overflow of that. It also is true that I can move my own heart by where I put my money ahead of time. So if you, I found this to be true for me. I used to not have anything to do with stocks. And then I got a really smart roommate who uh, helped me out a little bit on that. And um, so now I, I bought some stocks. Guess what I checked that I never cared about before? This stupid app on my phone that tells me what happened to Apple stock that day, right? I didn't care before, but now I do because my heart is there because my money is there, right? So what we can do in this principle is realize that by giving towards the Lord, I can actually move my heart towards the things of God. If you start investing in a missionary's life, for example, you'll start to be like, I kind of want to read that letter. What's going down? I'm invested in the work of God in that country. So the point of all this, boiling this all back down is this. My own opinion, and I'll very much emphasize that. There'd be others here at this church that probably say it different than me. I don't think that the tithe is a command 
for New Testament Christians. Some would disagree. Again, Jesus says in Luke 11, these are things you should have done without neglecting the latter. And if someone says, I think the tithes for today, cool. God bless you, man. But I do think that the tithe serves as a very useful uh, principle or tool for me. Some people have referred to it as the training wheels of giving. If in the New Testament, everything I have belongs to the Lord because he gave everything to me, then the tithe can be a way of teaching me how to be a giver in the same way that I don't think the Sabbath day applies to me, but it's a blessing to me to take a day off and rest and seek the Lord, right? I'm not under that as a law, but it can be a useful tool. So for myself, that's what I do. I, I tithe off of my gross, and then um, I also do offerings. I have things that I'll pray through, and between me and the Lord, decide I want to do this. I want to invest in this missionary or give to this Christian nonprofit or whatever, and I'll, I'll do that too, but that's something between uh, me and the Lord. And I, I found that a way um, to, to honor the Lord from my heart, to express my trust in Him, Listen, you'll feel this one deeply. There's those times when bills are really tight, you know, and you're not sure you're going to afford to do things. And if God really is our provider, Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, right? He's promising to take care of you. That there's a way when I say, Lord, it doesn't make a lot of sense for me to give this money to you first. I could use it to pay all these other bills or whatever, but I'll say, Lord, I want to, I want to honor you first. You're my provider. I trust you and believe that you'll provide all of my needs if I seek you first. That you do that and you'll see him come through. And I've seen that in my life. I had a story I could tell you, which I don't have time for. Um, so for me, it's about, it's a, I'm not under it as a law. I use it as a principle and uh, want to pray through these things with the Lord and ask him, how do you want me to be a giver? So that's the way I would answer that question. What do you guys think? Is there anything you want to? Yeah. I, I just want to add that, uh, and I've said this before in, in sermons, we have to always remember when we're reading the word of God, that if we're being told to do something, like be a generous giver, like God is telling that to us for our benefit, not his benefit. Because sometimes I think, it, you know, if, if we're giving reluctantly or we're giving like with an attitude of thinking that God, we're doing God a favor, like he needs our money. It's like he doesn't need our money. All money comes from him. He's our provider. He's trying to literally teach us like Matthew 6, it's for our benefit. And in, in that section I read earlier in 1 Timothy 6, um, there's, there's a warning about money. And, and I think any one of us would agree that finances can be like such a, a thing that causes so much stress in a person's life, like worrying about finances and, and letting them consume, like really they, they can cause us to fall into sin, like when they become something that our life revolves around. And, and Paul warns us of that in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, starting verse 6. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, okay? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So there's just a warning there, you know, where he says, you know, if, if you're content or if you have what you need, be content with that. Because that's what God's promised. He's like, I know your needs better than you do. I'm going to provide them. That's what he says in Matthew 6. You don't need to worry about these things. Just worry about following me. And so one of those things I think God is trying to teach us and just trusting him. And as he leads us to, to give and, 
and be generous is that, you know, you don't have to worry about like somehow, are you going to have enough? Because I'm going to give you enough. I know what enough is and I'm going to take care of you. And once we learn that, there's so much freedom in, from a, another thing in our lives that can cause us so much um, worry and, and, and anxiety and consume us when God's like, I want you free of that. You don't need to worry about that. I'm just as with my kids, I use that example. It's like, I don't want them worrying about money. They, while they live in my house, that's my job to take care of them. That's not for them to worry about. And God looks at you the same way. He's like, oh, I'll take care of that. That's an easy thing for me. Just focus on following me. And so that's one of the things he's taught me because when I got saved, I, I am, I can be a legalistic person and I'm very disciplined. It's like, okay, well, you know, they say we should tithe. I'm going to tithe. And, and at first it was kind of hard because my wife and I didn't have a lot of money in me going to college and us being poor, but we got in this habit of doing this and we never went without. We were always able to pay off bills. We never had to go in debt. And slowly but surely, you just I got to see Matthew 6 play out in my life in, in that God is taking care of us. And then it gets to the point where you just, you, if you feel like God's doing something, you know, yeah, I want to be, I want to use discernment. I want to, you know, we have a budget. We, we try to live within our means. But if God says, do this, I'm going to do it because I'm not going to outgive him. He's going to take care of me just like he's always taking care of me. And, and the blessing comes in that generosity. That's what it says there in Second yeah. in Corinthians. And I've experienced that over and over again. And God doesn't want us to, in a sense, rob ourselves of the blessing he wants to give us in that generosity, just the same as it, it blesses him to be generous to you as children. So I'll just piggyback on that to say, I, I love your example. That's the practical part is like, again, because God's so good, like if you're a person and you're trying to figure out giving, that try him. I mean, I, I don't yeah. think it in the Malachi way, like, dude, God's going to turn your garden into 20-fold or something because you gave 10%. But, like, he's a good father. He loves you. Like, seek him first and just watch him take care of you. It is so stretching and so wonderful when you see his specific provision for you. Like, he just, he loves me, not just Pastor Chris or Stephen. He really cares about me and my family. So I'd say, man, if you're trying to figure it out, like, seek him first and watch what your father will do because he cares about you. Amen. Anyone else have anything to add on that particular yeah, I was thinking of that verse in the uh, book of Acts where Paul is quoting Jesus and saying, it's more blessed to give than to receive, you know. And so if you really want to experience the blessing of God, um, you're going to have to learn how to give. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's something um, that you had said, Michael, maybe years ago in one of your teachings about nothing, uh, something to the effect of nothing tears down the um, altar of mammon, the god of, of money uh, or gain or greed, like giving it away, right? Mm-hmm. So if you find that you have a problem with like stinginess in your heart or having trouble wanting to give from your heart, nothing is going to break that like choosing to give. And mm-hmm. um, the nice thing about um, having a regular tithe is that it forces you to be reminded and often go against that inclination to greed and tear that idol down. And um, instead, I think you'll find, like you guys have been saying, that God fills in, in that place, that love of money, um, uh, a, a true joy from giving. And um, that's God's heart. God is a generous God. And um, if we're made to be in his image, then um, that's what we're made to be like too. God is a giving God, and he wants us to be giving too. Yeah. 
I, I do also find just on, you, you quoted that verse where it says like, where your treasure is, your heart will be. Like how that practically plays in my life is that like for the missionaries we give towards, there's a genuine care and excitement when I read their newsletters, when I talk with them, because it's like, I know that I'm a part of that work. You know, I'm not the hands and feet, but I am the one that's kind of supporting that. So I know God's using that. And same with my church family. You know, it's like when I see the work the Lord's doing here through, you know, my giving, God uses that, which isn't a grand scheme of things, a huge amount, but he takes it, breaks it, multiplies it, and uses it to do so much great things. And, and it, it, it does knit my heart. Like it makes me care about, about what the Lord's doing in those places. I, I've seen that practically play out in my life. Stephen? Would you like to answer the question? Here's a question that uh, Scott assigned Stephen. Calvinism, why is it under, what, why its understanding of election is unbiblical? So this person wants to know um, why Calvinism is unbiblical. I'm just trying to jam. <laughs> Cliff Notes version. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, the, to me at least, the question is, is it's difficult to answer in the way that it's worded because um, I believe the Bible does teach both. Um, I'm gonna just, let me just read some stuff here first. Let me just talk about what, uh, what Calvinism in general people think about when they think about the five points. And they refer to this as the TULIP. It's an acronym referring to the five theological uh, tenets affirmed at, the, at the blah, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. Um, so just to sum it up, it'll be simply be, um, where'd it go? Uh, Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance or divine preservation of the saints. And since then, this acronym has become to be used as a, a summary of teaching of Calvinism. Like Christianity, like whatever there is, there's all kinds of different uh, views in each of these uh, camps. So there's hyper-Calvinism, which would mean there's the total five points, that's it. There's no way through. Either God called you or he didn't. And there's other, there's other branches of that, which we don't have time to go into. I'm so grateful to refer you to Chris's coming up teachings here in Romans <laughs> 9 and, and 4. Or next eight week. And, half next of Sunday. Eight and forward. Next yeah, Sunday. So, uh, for the total thing there. But let me just read just some, some stuff uh, from theological terms just to uh, help prepare you for that. So, election, a biblical word used to speak of God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's purposes. In general terms, election can refer to God's choosing of persons for a type of service. While in a more particular sense, election refers to God's choosing of persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. The doctrine of election has been the subject of intense debate, particularly between Calvinist and Arminian theologians since the Reformation era. Uh, era sorry, uh, and goes on. Unconditional election, the view common among Calvinists. Again, tricky to say that because it's common yet it cannot be common because we have brothers and sisters who would say they're Calvinists, but are in total agreement with us, almost 100%. It's just a different way of saying it. <clears throat> uh, that election understood the predetermination of the destiny of human individuals. is based on God's sovereign, eternal decree rather than merely on divine foreknowledge or whether 
they will freely reject or accept salvation through Jesus Christ, as is generally taught by Arminians. And so if you were to ask me, am I a Calvinist or an Arminian, I would, there's not really a word for this, but it's both. Yes. Here's why I would say that. The Bible teaches that God calls us and Jesus accepts us. Some verses, John 6, 37 through 40. And uh, normally I just go to one verse, John 6, 37, because the debate is endless and it just, it's been the debate of the ages since I was in prison and didn't even know what this was. It, ha- it was already happening right then and there. I'm teaching the Bible and a guy comes up and tells me, you're going to hell. You're not, you know, so um, anyway. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Mm. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, again, like I said, starting next week in the second section of Romans 8 and forward through 9 and 10 and 11, it's all going to be explained thoroughly. The meat. (laughs) Perfectly. The meat of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I don't want to take up the time tonight. And... um, but I just want to assure us, like, if you're, if you're asking this question genuinely, know that you know that, just go to John six thirty seven. You know, when I think of John the Baptist, right? He was, in, he was in Elizabeth's tummy, right? He was called by God to prepare the way ahead for Jesus. When Jesus came up in Mary's tummy, John leaped for joy inside Elizabeth's tummy. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So when I, when I read that, when I see that, I go to John 6.37. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. That's where I personally land. I don't see any issue with that. But I, I would have an issue with the hyper-Calvinism. I would have an issue with um, the uh, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. But the beauty of that is Chris is going to dive into that so deep coming up here. It's going to be great. You're setting them up for disappointment. (laughs) I'm going to try my best, but you know, I, I think what it comes down to is like, so if you guys aren't really clear, these are theological terms come up by men or women, whatever, that define these theologies and trying to describe the things of God in man's understanding. And where sometimes I think we can go wrong is where you can get to a certain point and then it becomes unclear, and then you go beyond what Scripture says to try to clarify what is hard to, in your understanding to con, a, a concept. But here's the thing. God's ways aren't our ways. He's way above me. I can't think on the same plane as him. So for me, I can get to a certain point on Calvinism, which is talking about the sovereignty of God and choosing us to be saved, and Arminianism, which is your responsibility, your free will in choosing God um, in return, you know, choosing Jesus to, to save you. I can go so far with both of those theologies, but I think both of them go above and beyond what God's word actually says when, when you get to a certain point, and that's where I have to stop. And so, you know, I would agree with Stephen that I, I, I would say I'm in the middle only because 
I believe scripture teaches both to a certain degree in the middle, and that's where I end up because I, I don't feel comfortable going beyond what it actually says. And if I had to sum it up in, in layman's terms, I would say, well, God chooses you so you could choose him. And Amen. I'll try to talk about that in a little deeper way as I go through scripture because I think it's the best way to understand it over the next couple of weeks. But that is how I would sum up what I believe regarding, you know, the, the sovereignty of God in choosing us versus man's responsibility to choose him in return. Just a couple little things for just 37 through 40 um, from uh, Walvard, um, however you say his name. The Father works sovereignly in people's lives. There's an election of God which is the Father's gift to the Son. The Son has no concern that his work will be ineffective, for the Father will enable people to come to Jesus. 38 and 39. The reason he came down from heaven was to do the will of the Father who sent him. The Father's will is that those whom he gives to the Son will not suffer a single loss, and all will be raised to life in the resurrection. This passage is strong in affirming the eternal security of the believer. In 40, this verse repeats and reinforces the ideas of the previous verses. One who looks and believes on Jesus for salvation has his destiny secure. The divine decree has ensured it. He has eternal life and will be raised at the last day. To just know that you know that you know that you belong to him. When 37 starts, it says, all the Father has given me will come to me. When it comes to me, I will know by no means, or certainly not cast out. When you get to 40, it's just reaffirming 37, 38, and 39. When you read something once, you should listen to what God says. When he, re- when he reminds you again, it's super important to be reminded of what he just said again, like Peter and Paul would say, to remind you of what I've already told you a thousand times. It doesn't say a thousand, but it's not a waste of time for you. It's a safeguard for your heart. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was interesting, too. Like um, you brought up John the Baptist, and later on in uh, Luke, John actually sends to Jesus while he's in prison, right? And... Um, John seen the miracles. John baptized Jesus and saw the heavens opened and the, you know, spirit come down and rest upon Jesus like a like a dove, and has seen and heard the miracles that Jesus has been doing. And now he's imprisoned by Herod, and he sends to Jesus <laughs> to ask, "Are you the one? Are you the the Messiah? Are you the one that we're waiting for? That I've been like sent to proclaim the coming of." And so he's doubting. And Jesus says, yeah, hey, here's all the signs, man. Just like everything that the prophets said, you're seeing it. You're seeing it take place. And he just leaves it at that. And um, I don't know, my point was just like, I was thinking, what do we do with doubts? You know, and like, I think if you're genuine in your faith and you're actually a thinking individual, you will go through times of doubt. And even John the Baptist, the greatest prophet that ever arose, went through his doubts, right? And when he was in a pinch in prison, man, he was, he was questioning. And um, it's, it can be really discouraging if you think that having doubts is sin and you're, um, you're somehow subpar or sub-Christian to have doubts um, can be a really discouraging thing. And um, I've gone through times of doubts. I don't, I don't know if you guys have as well, but um, significant times of doubt. And uh, 
doubting God's existence. Mm -hmm. And it's not that you go through or that you have those doubts. It's what you do with Mm -hmm. those doubts, like how you walk through that process, right? And where you go to for your answers, you know, who you listen to and who you, um, where you're seeking, you know, truth from. So that's what's important. And that's what's going to get you through those times so that you can establish your faith upon a solid foundation, a foundation that is um, not um, against logic, but is with logic. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it all makes sense all the time, but that it is a reasonable faith. It's reasonable to put your trust in God who knows things that you don't know and has power that you don't have. And so I just wanted to put a plug in there for, you know, just maybe there's people who are going through that right now or have gone through that, or maybe you will be going through that and you need to put that in your back pocket for the time when you go through a time of yeah. doubt. So, yeah, I, I think the, the, the doctrines of, you know, election, predestination, you got to remember they're meant to be an encouragement yeah. because God knew yeah. that the enemy is trying every day to get you to believe you're a loser. Yeah. And what they say is, no, you're a winner in, in that God will see you through yeah. until you're with him again. And that's meant to motivate you when you're dealing with that, where you fall short, like Paul's talking about in Romans seven. And he says, I'm not doing the things I want to do. And I'm still struggling with this and I'm wretched. And so you can remind yourself, but God has said that he's going to see me through to the end. He's not going to give up on me. It's meant to be an encouragement. It's not to meant to like be worrying about like, am I elected or am I? No, it's like, don't worry about that. If you place your faith in Jesus, you're saved. Now, and this is the promise God's given you. He's going to see you through to the end. So keep following him. I just want to say one thing uh, that I disagree with Stephen on. I just felt like it was important for the broadcast. I don't think that babies come from mommy's tummies. <laughs> I don't know a lot of things, but I think April, April may need to talk to you about that. All right. Well, this, this question has kind of something to do with God's sovereignty. So, uh, Britton, uh, the question was, if God knows what's happening in the world and is sovereign and has a plan, allowing some things that we might not want, can we really change God's mind? Yeah, so, um, yeah, this, this question actually has uh, quite a bit to do with what we've just been talking about. Um, I'm just going to reread that just because there's a few things in here. Um, if God knows what's happening in the world. So that's um, referring to a presupposition that God is omniscient. He knows all things, things past, things present, and things to come. And that there's nothing outside of his knowledge or no one can be doing anything, you know, secretly behind God's back. God's not going to get anything pulled over on him. Uh, That he is sovereign refers to this ruling over everything, right? Having um, power to enact his will and power to bring things to a certain end, right? And the last part, and has a plan. So God is directing the course of history towards a certain end. Um, and I don't disagree with any of those, those suppositions in this question. Um, they're supported by Scripture all the way through. Um, but the last part, can we really change God's mind? And so saying that there's, there's some things in that plan that God's bringing about or allowing to happen uh, that we don't like or don't want or that we might be 
acting to change. Um, so my question, maybe for the questioner, is, and what I'm really curious about this is, um, why do you want to know if you can change God's mind? Like, what, what would that do for you? Back to that sort of, like, um, how would that be helpful to you if you knew whether or not you could change God's mind? Um, because I think one of the main ways in which we will interact with this question is, is in this, like, why pray? You know, if God already knows what's going to happen and already is like has a plan and he's already bringing about stuff, like why even pray? Um, what good will it do? Um, God's going to just have his way in the end. And so why would I take the time? Why would I? Prayer isn't easy. Prayer is not fun. I don't know if you guys have tried to be regular um, in your prayer life, but uh, it's, it's a very unnatural thing. It's supernatural, in fact. So um, I, I sympathize with anyone who wants to get out of you know, praying because um, it's not the most fun thing to do at the time, like going to the gym or eating healthy. Um, it's, it's not what you will incline, um, you'll na- be naturally inclined to do. So um, I will say this, though. What God reveals about himself is so that you can know something about him, right? And so when God um, says things in his word like that he wants us to pray and faint not, like in the Gospels, that he, Jesus has said um, that we should ask and keep asking, mm-hmm. to knock and keep knocking, to seek and to keep seeking. He said that what, if we ask what we will, it will be given to us. We ask in his name, believing that we have the things which we ask for. Um, he says that to us. Well, why would he say that to us if we can't change his mind or can't, or, or God won't answer prayer? But we know this throughout the scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament. God answers prayers of people, people asking God for things, and God responds to them. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how all that works with God's foreknowledge and God's sovereignty and God's big plan, but I do know that in the past, how God has revealed himself both in what he says about himself and how he interacts with people, what he does, is that when people pray, God amazingly responds. How does it work? I don't know. He says, ask what you will in my name, believing you have the things you ask for, and I'll do it. I don't know. That's pretty challenge. That's enough for me to be challenged by. Because I don't know about you. That seems really um, hard to do. I don't always pray with that kind of faith, knowing that I have the things that I ask for. So that's that's challenging enough. Um, beyond trying to figure out, you know, the ins and outs of God's sovereign plan and like what. Um, whether or not it's worthwhile for me to pray. Um, I think that's answered in Scripture pretty um, well. But I will bring up a couple of um, specific spots where we see um, God responding to people. Um, In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 through 14, we have this interesting situation where Moses is uh, up on the mountain and getting the law of God, 
and the people are down in the valley having a party, making golden calves, and it's pretty crazy down there. And so the Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed uh, to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Um, now, therefore, let me alone or leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your, your people? <laughs> They're not my people. I didn't bring them up out of Egypt. You did that. Whom you have brought up and with great power and with a mighty hand, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he has brought them out and ki to kill them um, in the mountains and to consume them from off the face of the earth? Turn your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So this is also a rather difficult um, passage. We see in other places where it says that um, God is not like a man, that he should change his mind. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so from this passage, one might read that and go, well, it looks like God changed his mind, mm -hmm. you know? And um, I'll bring in this other scripture, which I think is pretty important um, to show the heart of God. And it's from Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. 22:30, book of Ezekiel. And it says, And I sought for a man among whom, um, among them, who should build up the wall and to stand in the breach for the land, that I should not destroy it. But I found none. I just thought that's so interesting. You know, here, um, I believe it's another, um, another version that says, to build up the wall of righteousness that guards the land. Basically, God is saying, look, I'm looking for an, a mediator. I'm looking for an intercessor. I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap for people, right? And the, that, that story back in um, Exodus just shows this, this truth that God is looking for someone to be the mediator between God and man, someone to stand in the gap to take the wrath for us, right? So there's this, this sort of like, preparation showing the necessity for the coming of Christ to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? And, and Moses responds very wisely there. Um, and I, I think this is more of a situation where God is looking for a man to stand in the gap and to show that necessity for that. And Moses does. He, he says, Lord, you know, he brings up this um, turn, relent, and remember 
And does God need to turn? Does God need to repent? Does not God need to remember anything? Mm. No, God knows all these things. It's for Moses' sake, and it's for our sake to show us we need someone. We are a rebellious people. Mm. I don't know if you've looked around, but like we haven't gotten any better than the Israelites back then. So we need someone to stand in the gap for us. And the the awesome thing um, concerning this Ezekiel passage is someone did stand in the gap for us. Mm. And that's the man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who took the wrath, suffered uh, on our behalf. And um, so here, and just, you know, we, I bring that because we, we have this uh, spot where we see um, God is showing his character that he's just, and he sees the, the wickedness of the Israelites in turning away from him. And what does God do? He responds rightly by saying, my wrath is coming. And also we see God's mercy in that God relents from pouring out his wrath, Mm -hmm. right? And we also see that God is looking for people to be a part of his redemptive process, Mm -hmm. right? There's um, someone reminded me that God uses means to accomplish his will, right? And some of those means are you and me. We are those agents that God wants to use in his sovereign plan. Um, there's another verse, I, I didn't put this in, but I love it. It's from, um, I think it's Second Chronicles um, 16, 19, I believe. But it's the one that says, the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. What was that passage, Michael? 16.9. Uh, 16.9. Second Corinthians 16.9. Uh, Chronicles. That's right. And um, so, yeah, in, in regards to this, this um, can we change God's mind? I don't know how all that works, but I do know these things. God wants us to pray. He tells us to pray. He tells us to intercede. And God uses means. He wants to use us, me and you. We get to choose to be a part of that or not. And that goes right along with the, the giving thing too, right? Is like, how much do you want to participate in God's redemptive work in the world? Mm. Like, do you want to be a part of that? Or do you want to sit on the sidelines? And, and no, you may not be um, able to participate in that the way other people are, but God has given and entrusted certain things to you to steward. How do you want to use those things for the kingdom of God? It's just like uh, Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, right? while it was in your hands, like the money, it was in your power to do with it what you wanted. And so like God gives us this agency, this freedom to choose things, and you get to choose what you do with that. And there's joy in following God's way and in being led by his spirit and becoming generous and taking responsibility for the stewardship that God gives you. And that may not just be money. That's the whole plethora of everything God has given you in life. And so um, I think that's uh, going uh, well beyond the question. But uh, you guys have anything else to It was really thorough. I thought that was good. I I was just thinking of this one verse that I would add in James 4, 2, where um, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. And... I, it's kind of like a haunting verse because what that tells me is that if I don't seek to be involved in the way God's, like if I don't pray, then 
I'm left wondering if somehow not praying limited God in some way from what he wanted to do. Whereas if I pray, even if things, if I involve God, if I ask, you know, like with the question, if I'm asking him to do something and it doesn't, even if it doesn't happen the way I want, I can rest in knowing that, okay, well, God had other plans, but his plans are always, according to Romans 12, too, going to be good, pleasing, and perfect. So even if it doesn't work out the way I want, I can have faith that it's for my best. But if I don't ever ask, I'm left wondering, should I? Could I? Maybe it would have made a difference because that tells me that if I don't, or I d- if something doesn't happen, it, it could be because I didn't ask. So I want to involve God in prayer as much as I can so that I can have that peace and just wait upon him to do what he wants to do, knowing that that's always going to be for my best interest in mind. I've recently become a parent in the last four years. And uh, <laughs> when you reminded me of that verse, it reminded me of what Jesus said. And so I think it's also a, a, a proof of faith. Like, my daughter asked me for anything. And I'm going to give it to her if it's good for her. God says he won't withhold any good thing to those who love him. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Another verse says he who gives good gifts, he has no sorrow with it. So in the, in the case of us praying in faith and then, you know, not having faith, failing in faith, and he's still faithful, yeah. 18 years of praying because we had faith in the one who could do it if he wanted to do it. Now, how and why and when and all that, I won't ever know that until I get to heaven. But I know he's a God who answers prayer, and he wants us to believe in him. Another thing that reminded me of uh, in that verse was, it's not tied to that verse, but in my mind it ties to it, when Jesus went to his hometown. Mm. And he couldn't do anything there. or Not that he couldn't do anything there. I think it's more that he wouldn't do anything there mm-hmm. because of their unbelief. He wants us to believe that he's our dad. He's our, I saw your notes there. He's our Abba Father. He wants us to call on him. He wants us to have that fellowship with him. And when we don't have that fellowship, we can read the Bible all we want, and we'll fill our head and our mind full of wisdom, but not God's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Because it can be all, and I've, I'm guilty of this myself. My next question is law and grace, so I don't know if you're ready for that yet. But um, I can be full-on speaking the truth, preaching the law, and have no grace. Grace comes from fellowship. Grace comes from being touched by God. Grace comes from the Holy Spirit coming upon you and you realizing that you are absolutely destitute, desperate, and naked before him with whom we have to do. He sees all. He knows all. Like I think you talked about him being omniscient, um, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. And just being a parent now, it just shows me how much I want to give to her. Mm. I want her to have everything I can possibly give her that is good. And the most important thing I want to give her is all that she needs to know about Jesus Christ and the way that I live and the way that I talk and the way that I parent, the way that I love her mom, the way that I interact uh, at church, all the things that she does, I want her to know that more than anything. And I think that's God's heart for us is that, (laughs) shocker, he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. That relational intimacy with him. And again, I just love that Last Supper picture there. John's laying on his chest there. 
He can feel his heartbeat. He can hear Jesus talk to him. He's close. It's just that picture of intimacy. When you're close to Jesus, you can hear him talk. When you're close to him, you can sense, you can sense his presence. And it changes your life. I mean, you don't pray, you're going to realize, man, I am missing out. I've read and everything, but man, I don't have any, I don't have the understanding that I desire because I haven't taken time to just meditate with him. And just, and again, I think Chris mentioned this recently, a lot of times, like now as I run my mouth, I can talk a lot. But listening, just being with God, just being there to hear him, to listen to what he has to say, mm. that is a huge discipline for me at least very hard to just be silent and listen but the times that i do all i hear him tell me is you're mine and i love you and that for me when i when i understand that in the moment and continue out through my day in that way changes all my conversations changes the way i look at people it changes the way i talk to people changes it all Amen. Anything else on that one, guys? Okay, uh, the next question is for Pastor Michael. Where did the people come from who lived in the land of Nod? I'll give you the easy answer, Eden. Okay, <laughs> everyone came to me, but he's going to ask more detail. That's it. <laughs> okay, so uh, this is from Genesis chapter 4, verses, uh, verse 16. It says, so Cain left the Lord's presence, which was in... Eden and settled <laughs> in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So what we know about Nod is that it was east of Eden. I think there's a famous, is it Steinbeck who wrote the east of Eden? Or doesn't matter, sorry, that's my brain. Anyway, the word Nod just means wandering. So it's not necessarily saying that there's like a United States of Nod or he had to pass through passport <laughs> control to go into Nod and had to learn new language. He's just saying there's a region. And of course, we know in uh, 4.16, the reason that he's headed out of the land, out of the Lord's presence is a matter of discipline. He'd murdered his brother. So God's discipline in his life was that he had to be exiled. He had to wander from the presence of the Lord. So it's very likely that the land of Nod is not necessarily denoting, like I say, a specific place, like a country, but noting the land of his wandering, the place of his wandering. Um, now, the reason this comes up, well, sorry, I'm going to make a little, nope, I'll answer the question first. Okay, the reason this usually comes up is clearly Cain goes on to have a family in the land of Nod in that region. And so usually this leads into the great question, well, where did Cain get his wife? If you're so smart, I mean, there was no Tinder back then. There's just <laughs> Abraham and Eve's kids. And he's got a few that we know of, Seth and uh, Abel's dead and Cain. So where's Cain get his wife? Well, the, the assumption is he probably married a relative. So a sister, or they lived a really long time, so maybe he married like a niece or something like that. Now, all of us are like, ooh, that's disgusting. As you should, if you're okay <laughs> with that, you have, you have a problem. <laughs> but most people think like, how could that have been a thing? Is that okay? Is that good? Well, okay, so good in a relative sense. And here's why they, those objections come up. Uh, because in Leviticus 20, uh, where God outlines a lot of, puts a lot of boundaries around sexual activity, he says, don't marry your sister. To which all of us are like, amen. By the way, when you read Leviticus 20 and there's stuff like don't have sex with animals, don't have sex with your relatives or with your mom, we're like, what in the world? Do you realize God had to teach his people this? When they came out of Egypt, he had to like put boundaries. There's some dude taking notes like, okay, don't have sex with animals. All right, that's a good thing to remember. This is wild to think about. Like people were messed up and God had to regulate all that. Anyways, so some of the stuff we take for granted is, uh, is um, 
not was not so normal. Anyway, why? Why did God regulate it in this way? Well, there could be a lot of different reasons, but we know today scientifically that um, the science says, sorry, <laughs> that uh, if you have two, you have inbreeding, essentially, the genetic pool is such that it results in birth defects. So God's law in this case to his people was to protect them. Say, hey man, don't get, you know, bad smiles like the British. No? Okay, kidding. Nobody's going to laugh at that? I thought that was funny. The big book of British smiles. Sorry, okay, probably all a little bit British. Anyways, so God was doing that as a prohibition to protect his people. But it's very likely in Cain's day in that the OG humans, that the gene pool was not so denigrated as it is now. And we can see that in various ways, one of which was the length of time that people lived. When you go back and read those genealogies, you got people living 900 years. So things were working in their body very differently in mine, where at 48 years old, I'm like, why does my knee even feel that way? You know, and that guy's lived 900 years. And we keep... What's that? No red dye. No red dye. That's right. It's because they had essential oils. Anyways, I just had a lot of fun with this question. Genesis uh, 20, though, indicates that Abraham and Sarah were half brothers and sisters. Now, what about that? Well, that was before the law. So the law is what regulated that activity, and there's probably a good reason for it. But that wasn't in effect in Abraham's day, nor was it in effect in Cain's day. So short version, he probably married his sister in the land of Nod, and they had a family. So that's it. And Chris's answer is right. It's <laughs> East of Eden. All right. It's good. Uh, let's see. Uh, Stephen, well, we got time. Um, next question is for Stephen. It's explain the difference between grace and law in obedience versus legalism or self-righteousness versus God's righteousness. Where have you been the last, like, <laughs> I've been talking about these things. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just giving you a hard time. I know people miss, and, but that, these are, like, what we're talking about in Romans, like, in depth. So I really encourage you, if for some reason you have been gone or you missed teachings, like, watch them online or listen to them, you know, like, when you're doing chores or something like that because it's good stuff we're going through. But he's going to give the Cliff Notes version. Yeah, that's in my notes to refer you back to Chris's teaching. <laughs> um, just to, uh, I'm going to really make it simple. Before I was born, no, I'm just kidding. Grace. I'm just going to talk about grace real quick. Uh, the difference of long grace. Law. You, re- you rely on yourself to be right with God. Grace. You rely on Jesus to be right with mm-hmm. God. Law. 3,000 people died when the law was introduced. Grace, 3,000 people joined the church when Mm. Peter preached the first sermon about God's grace. Mm. Law, you must behave before you belong. Mm. Grace, you belong, and your behavior will change to reflect that reality. Mm. Law, it magnifies sin. Mm. Grace, it magnifies forgiveness. Law, instructs how to live a fulfilling, healthy life. Grace empowers us to live a fulfilling, healthy life. And I want to say that um, when I first got saved, uh, almost uh, a little over 25 years ago now, um, grace was easy to understand in the first moments because I knew who I was and what a wretch I was. And in that depravity, God was saying, I love you. You are welcome in my family. You are now adopted into my royal family. And I knew, I knew who I really was, and I knew 
who I was now. But let me tell you something crazy that happened for the next seven years. I began to become legalistic. I did not try to become legalistic, but I ended up, Michael and I joke about this all the time, being closet legalists, um, trying to um, do good things. Because in my old life, and I, I, my wife gets on me for talking about my old life because that's not who I am. I'm not trying to say that's who I am. This is in reference to who I was. I was a drug dealer, a drug manufacturer, living in the world, making deals, wheeling and dealing, talking, about, you know, I could talk my way out of anything. I could buy my way out of anything. I could manipulate. So in my mind, I think of myself like Paul when he says I'm the chief of sinners. I think the same way about myself. And I foolishly tried to wheel and deal with God for like seven years. We moved here in uh, June of 07, and I, st I finally started learning and relearning grace. And I've been on that journey since. I'm still learning and relearning grace. When I stay in the grace column, it doesn't matter what's happening over here. When I stay in the grace column, I have peace that passes all understanding that guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. To be under law means that we must do something for God. To be under grace means God has done something for us. As for Galatians 3, 10 through 14 says, For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We do not mechanically obey a set of rules, but we lovingly, from the heart, obey the Spirit of God who fulfills the righteousness of the law in us. Our obedience to God is not that of a slave, fearing a master, but that of a bride, lovingly pleasing her bridegroom. And we cannot fulfill the righteousness of the law by our own strength. The Spirit fulfills it in us by His power. And again, and I don't mean this, you know, as a snub, but I implore you just to go back to the last, just go back to the start of Romans teaching Chris has been doing where if you've missed any of it, just go back to where you left off last time you were at church or last time you tuned in online, however it is, and just tune in and just allow the Word of God to wash over you, to comfort you, to encourage you, to show you that Christ did it all for you because you couldn't. You owed a debt you could never pay. He paid the debt that he didn't owe. It's as simple as that and mind-blowing as that. And don't I mean, we could exhaust this and exhaust this and exhaust this. I'm a simple person. I just need to know what, who Christ is and what he's done for me. I was blind, now I see.
And I'll tell you what, when you just allow him to have you, the old man, it just, he's already been put to death. You've heard it said, Jesus catches the fish the way it is, and then he cleans it. Our pastor has told us countless times, Jesus saved you just the way you were, way you are, but he didn't save you to leave you that way. Yeah, one thing I would just add is, and, and this is just really what's been ministering to me is, is I've been going through Romans, just this Paul repeating over and over again to really try to help us understand, like practically, the law, legalism, self-righteousness, all those are ever going to lead to is failure to do what's right. That's all it leads to, failure, whether before salvation or after salvation, both the same. Trying to live under those things is just going to lead to failure in doing what's right. But grace and God's righteousness and obedience are going to lead to freedom so God can help you do what's right. It's never in our own power. We can't do it before we're saved. We can't live up to it after. It's always God that does it all. And so that's the freedom we can experience only in God, not in trying to live under it ourselves. All right, one last question. I, Britain's going to have eight minutes to get through it. So, uh, well, um, we'll see. If we, if we did, we'll see how quick. So this question is, I read that the Aramic translation, uh, the word father is beloved. Would it be okay to have a conception of God as the beloved rather than as a father? Okay, so here's what, I, I'm not a um, scholar in Aramaic, nor in Hebrew, nor in ancient Greek. Um, but what little I could just find on um, the subject is uh, Abba seems to be the father um, translation in Aramaic. And Abi is the beloved. So uh, I could understand if there's uh, confusion in the, in the similarity between these words. Um, but they do seem to be different words. Um, and there is some... Well, I'll get into that later. Um, so I think the thing we do see is in Song of Solomon, uh, we see the word beloved and uh, the one who my soul loves... Um, and words like that mentioned about 46 times is what I counted. So it's like uh, packed into that, um, that love poetry that uh, Solomon wrote. And so we have this, so the question, would it be okay to have a conception of God as the one whom your soul loves? Yes, I hope you do, <laughs> you know, amen. Um, but the problem I have is, is with this part, would it be okay rather to have this conception of God other than as father? Um, and the answer would be no. Uh, it would not be okay to supplant one, um, one part of revelation of who God has said he is mm -hmm. with another one. Yeah. Here's an easy um, example. Uh, if we took it from the New Testament, we said, okay, from John 10, um, Jesus says, I am the door to the sheep. You know, no one comes into the sheepfold except through me, right? And um, I said, well, Jesus says that he's the door, 
So would it be okay for me to have a conception of Jesus as the door rather than as the Christ or as the good shepherd or as the living water or any of the other number of, of ways that Jesus um, you know, described himself as? And we would obviously say, well, no. Why would, why would I have to pick one of those things that Jesus used to conceptualize himself as? Um, he is all of those things at the same time. And I would say... Um, Yes, Jesus, or sorry, God is our beloved, but he's also our father. Mm-hmm. Why would I take away one from the other? Um, I don't know if you guys remember this. Uh, back when I was in high school, I remember the whole uh, um, word Abba was like really coming into uh, vogue. And uh, there was a lot of talk about how um, Abba means um, daddy. And uh, it's funny, I looked into this a little bit, and evidently... Um, it's been used in modern Hebrew as Papa or Daddy, but in the Aramaic, it's Father. And so there's a word for Father in Hebrew, and but they didn't have a word for Papa or Daddy, so they pulled that one in to be a further use. So um, it was really uh, popular to uh, you know begin to pray you know, to Papa God, Daddy God, you know, and, and Abba. And so, like, in this, this sense of, of, like, of endearment, right, of, of God as uh, a, a kindly father you could approach. And, and do we have a problem with that? No, because, because he is approachable. But it seems like the, there was sort of a, this, this idea, the rather kind of idea. Well, I don't like the idea of God being stern and holy and unapproachable mm. and, and God being, you know, these sort of like a disciplinarian and these kind of ideas. So let's, let's just sort of plant that with this idea of Abba instead, right? That's more comfortable. And, and not to say that everybody did that, but some people did. And I definitely was around people that were wanting to sort of like bring that in. And that's incorrect because, I mean, we see from Hebrews 12 that God is the disciplinarian. We see from First uh, Peter that um, God is holy and we are to be holy like he's holy. So to try to take away from the word because of something that we want it to say, uh, or a conceptualization of God that's hard. Um, we just need to deal with that. Like we just need to deal with the fact that God is holy and God is the Father. And and this is not because I want Him to be or don't want Him to be, but because this is the way God has revealed Himself to be. And He either is or isn't. And if I'm coming up with ideas of what God is like, um, who knows better about God? Me or God? Um, I'm going to go with God knows better than me do. So um, I should probably go to the scriptures to look at what God has said about himself. Um, That's where we see him revealing himself. So I would point you back to that. Yeah, I I think that's a great answer. And I would say that every attribute of God that he reveals about himself is important for us to understand. That's why he puts it in there. And... And you can understand them all, like, together, like, how they work together. Like, I was just thinking of the example of, like, when I coach my boys. They have a special relationship with me as their dad, so they can approach me as their father. But they also better remember I'm their coach, or they're going to be running laps. Like, if they, they treat me in such a way that isn't as they should their coach. So there's different relationships there that they need to understand for their benefit. And so 
on a whole greater level. God's given us, he's revealed himself to us in, in all these awesome attributes of himself for our benefit so we know who we're talking to. We know who it is that's our, our God. We know who it is that is, is making these promises to us and, and keeping them and being faithful. Like those are all for our benefit to know those things so we don't have to wonder. Uh, we've got a little bit of time, Michael. Okay, so the last question is, is it okay to utilize body parts from other people or cadavers for surgery health issues? I thought this was going to be dead by the time I got to it. <laughs> okay, you, bury, you buried it at the end. I'll go ahead and handle it. All right, so um, not sure what to say exactly to this. I'd love to, if you're the person who asked this question and I missed the point, please come to me and let me know. Uh, this is not covered in the Bible. There's no verse that says thou shalt use cadavers or not. Um, so my, I'm going to guess a little bit at that, but I just want to say what these guys have brought up earlier, which is we don't want to go beyond what's written in the Bible. That's the point of this. So, um, my, my guess here is how to, how would some, where would this question be coming from? But I would say the short version is this is a matter of conscience between you and the Lord because it's not covered specifically in scripture. But some groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, view some of these old Testament, old covenant prohibitions in a certain way that may lead them to these kinds of conclusions. So if, if, this, if you're a person who's asking this and you come from that background or you've run into somebody, maybe that's where it's coming from. The key verse there would be um, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 14, which says that the life of every creature is in its blood. That's why I've said to the people of Israel, you must never eat or drink blood for the life of any creature is in its blood. So whoever consumes blood will be cut off from the community. So that would of course include human blood as well. And so there was a time where for Jehovah's Witnesses, there were some, there were some um, prohibitions around how they could do that. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, so they're not Orthodox Christians. And if you're drawing your doctrine from them, you probably want to steer clear. Um, so if, if that's where your question is coming from, I'd say that's a misapplication of uh, Leviticus 17, 14. And furthermore, that verse applies to the Mosaic law, which was given as a covenant to the Jews, and you're probably not a part of that group. If you're a Christian, you're certainly not. You're part of the new covenant. Um, in, in addition, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 53 says this, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. He goes on this verse from Leviticus 17, 14, and just like on its face says, hey, you need to consume me. Now, what does he mean, actual cannibalism? No, he says in the same passage in John 6, John 6 come up a lot tonight. He says, the things I've spoken to you are spirit and our life. These are spiritual truths. Uh, Galatians 4, 15 Paul says, he says, you guys would have, you loved me so much. You were so excited about the gospel. You would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me if that was possible. And he didn't view that as a bad thing. He saw that as an expression of their love. Um, and I'm just joking here, but Ephesians 4, 25 says, we're members of one another. So you're already <laughs> So anyway, the bottom line is, this is a matter of conscience between you and God. There's no scripture that I can see that's clear on that. If I'm missing your question, please let me know. All right. That was the most questions I think we've ever answered in one night. So well done, gentlemen. And hopefully we uh, answered all your guys' questions sufficiently. You're always more than welcome to track us down individually if you had an additional question or something you want clarification on. And uh, we hope you guys keep sending these questions in so we can keep uh, answering them uh, using God's word. So God bless you guys. Have a good evening.